Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through past stories from amazing people. This is season two, and we are keeping it going with compelling guests with interesting stories. Today, I'm joined by Ted Golden, a former DEA agent who has both a unique journey and perspective on how law enforcement can best engage with the communities they serve. Ted, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. So let's dive right in. I want to start with your background. You're born and raised in Jackson, Tennessee, an hour east of Memphis. Big family, seven siblings. You're the second oldest, dad from the country, mom from the city. What's childhood like for you? Housing projects, Lincoln Courts. Uh, it's a, a very large uh, brick housing project with uh, single family like condos, except, you know, they're like maybe six, four units to the to each building two-story concrete floors concrete steps uh one heating unit in the house and at the time when i was growing up there was no air conditioning concrete walls uh no sheetrock gas stove gas uh, heating unit in the lower level you know just a humble uh humble place to be from and and sometimes a dangerous place to be from now why do you say that well, you know, in housing projects, you, you have a lot of kids and a lot of people that engage in different kinds of crafts that aren't necessarily legal, whether mm. it's selling drugs or or just jacking people up and taking their stuff. Uh, right, prostitution, right. Uh, you know, just about everything and anything that you can think of it happens in housing projects because there are low-income people, many who don't have jobs, many parents who have uh low-paying labor jobs. My mother didn't work when I was a young fellow. My dad was a mm -hmm. construction worker. He worked in Nashville, Tennessee. So we only saw him every other weekend up until mm -hmm. I was about, probably about eight years old, he finally moved back home. We saw him every other weekend. And, and it was a dangerous place. The people that uh, we grew up with, especially the older kids, they were very abusive and, and uh, did some things to us that, you know, you, you just don't think could happen to a kid at five years old. Uh, Did you mean but, just like uh, we, bullying or beating folks up or bullying, beating folks up, uh, harassing you? I remember one time they stole my trick or treat bag <laughs> and uh, I had a cousin who was uh, a good sized girl. She went and got my bag and brought it back to me. I don't know how she knew who took it, but she went and got she's it. Like, she's like, <laughs> Ted, getting his candy. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's the uh, size of this community and the city that you're you're growing up in? Well, Jackson back then was, I know it was under 50,000 people. And because I lived in the housing projects, you know, we just assumed that most people in the world were black like us. Hmm. The only white people we saw were the guy who collected the rent, the guy who drove the bus, and then police officers. Other than that, up until I was about maybe 10 years old, I thought that most of the world was black. You know, even though wow. television was black and white, but the people I spent most of my time around were, were black people. My parents, yeah. uh, my grandparents, uh, church, we went to church with black folks. We stayed on the black side of town and we just didn't get exposed to white people. I didn't really meet many white folks until I became, I uh, went to seventh grade middle school. And that's when we first encountered white students. Now I had white teachers for the first time in the, I think it was the fifth grade, had a white teacher for the first time. And then I didn't really get exposed to a lot of white people until I went to middle school, which when they merged the the black high school and the black 
the black high school and the white high school right across the street from so they merged them and then they, they built a new junior high school for us on the north side of town called parkway junior high and we had two other junior highs in this in the, the city uh tigrid and uh, jackson jr but we were all mixed at that point in time there were black and white students in the same building got it now once you get to middle school uh, you get involved in sports. I think you started with baseball. What what kind of uh, pulled you into initially getting involved uh, in sports? Well, I had a cousin who was from Chicago. His his dad, my mom's older brother, had died a few years earlier, and they were sent down to the to to, to spend the summer with us because the mother was you know she was by herself with four kids. So the older kids were sent down. My cousin Ricky was a a Chicago Cubs fanatic. Uh, so I guess it's Willie Stargell. I think it was his, his hero. And he just talked baseball, baseball, baseball day and night. And the opportunity came to join the baseball team. So I went out there like him, you know, wanted to be with him. Right. Uh, he was much bigger than me at the time. And um, I, I tried to play baseball. <laughs> <laughs> you got out there. Now, tell me this story about you being able to hit the ball out the park during the daytime, but not at night. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, it was unbelievable as a kid. Uh, my, we had adult coaches and we, we had to, had to walk for three miles to get to the baseball practice field on the south side of town. And uh, uh, in the daylight, I knocked the cover off the ball. The coach had to pitch to me. Mm. And, and, but it, our games were at night. And in the dark, with the, with the, uh, the baseball field lights on, you know, for some reason, I couldn't see the ball well enough to hit it. And they thought it was some kind of jinx or something. They tried to change my stance, change it from left, left side of the plate, right side of the plate to the left side of the plate, all kind of stuff. I got two hits in three seasons. I was a pretty good defensive player. Uh, you know, I could feel the ball well, threw out a couple of folks at, uh, at home plate, even robbed a couple of home runs. But when it come to hitting, I couldn't do it and got to middle school and realized that I couldn't see. Mm. I actually couldn't. I, I was watching a basketball game in the ninth grade, and um, I saw the. Um, I was looking at the game and couldn't read the guys' numbers and realized that I had a vision problem. And here I thought I was jinxed. So uh, you know, I ended up wearing glasses and never played baseball again. But I, I did play football, basketball, and I threw the shot in the discus in high school on the track team. Yeah, no, good uh, all-around set of experiences. Now I know with some folks who get involved in sports, it keeps them out of trouble. I think you had uh, an experience around this. Yeah, you know, one of the difficult parts about growing up in the housing projects, we went from, we our family continued to grow, so we had to move out of the Lincoln, Lincoln Courts and moved into Parkway East, which is a new housing project built on a soybean field with sheetrock and 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 the regular stuff you build houses with and, and brick. And the difficulty was that a lot of black guys didn't want to play organized sports. Uh, basketball, they were crazy about, but not football. Hmm. And the, the good that? thing about, well, you know, for a lot of them, they just didn't like the, uh, the uniformity, the discipline. Mm-hmm. You know, people who aren't accustomed to being coached, uh, being led by adults and listening and following instructions, they have a difficult time. And I can say this, and probably every black athlete you'll ever talk to will say this. The best mm-hmm. athletes were never on the field or on the basketball court. They just weren't coachable. I played, I, I grew up with kids that were phenomenal athletes, 
I'm talking about one guy named was Jimmy Butterbean Love. His arms <laughs> went down it. past his knees. And this guy was dunking in junior high school. Wow. A guy named Larry Starks who recently passed away. He could play everything. It didn't matter. If you put a tennis racket in his hand, he could play tennis. He had unbelievable speed, unbelievable agility, basketball, baseball, football, even he even high jumped one time, six foot three, and never high jumped before in his life. He was dunking the basketball in the eighth, seventh, eighth grade. And you know, we had the 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 uh, the steel rims with the chain nets. And mm-hmm. we played on asphalt because they didn't we didn't have dirt, we had asphalt. And the backboard was all metal. So, you know, it was a a great time for me because it got me exposed to a lot of people. And the good part about playing sports is uh you get to meet different folks from different walks of life. So I got right. exposed to to white folks. I got exposed to kids whose parents were school teachers and lawyers and doctors and you know, their attitudes were different. And it made me understand where I fit in because my mama didn't play. You, if you got in trouble, you were in deep stuff. She was five foot, five foot eight, five nine, about 225 pounds. And her hands were as big as mine are now. <laughs> and uh, if you messed up, buddy, she tore your behind up. Matter of fact, the last, the last whooping I got was for being outside after dark. And I was 16 mm-hmm. years old then. So, right. uh, you know, that streetlight thing is true. If the streetlights come on, you better find your way home. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. Now, you you played different sports. You eventually found your way to football and mm-hmm. uh, ended up getting uh, a football scholarship to Memphis State University. Tell me, you know, what was that experience like uh, as you transitioned to college? Well, you know, I played on a high school football team that had a great reputation and a fantastic coach that, re- that respected us. His name was Richard Ross. You didn't use profanity on the field. You didn't beat up on players. You followed instructions, and we were very successful. We only lost four games during the time I was, I was in high school. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them was a state championship my senior year. We lost fifty to forty-eight in triple overtime. Scored a touchdown in that in that game too. Wow! But but going to college was completely different. I actually had a scholarship to Ole Miss. One of the coaches there had hunted with my grandfather, and they were begging me to come to Mississippi. And uh, my grandmother said, don't go there. She says, not safe for black men down there. So I ended up going to Memphis where I had a, a set of, my mom had some first cousins that were there. My grandmother's brother's children were all still there. Five of them were still there. And one of them lived within five miles of the university. So hmm. I went there and, 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 uh, and played college football, played two seasons. And the, exp- the experience was, was a little bit life altering because you know, you, you, you're in a place now where they use a whole lot of profanity. Mm-hmm. I got hit upside the head several times. I kind of noticed at some point in time that I was the only one getting hit upside the head. Out of the, in, the, in the offensive line, they were, I was only one of two blacks on the offensive line. And uh, my, my junior year was not started off bad. I got sick, got a bad stomach virus, and I didn't do well in the physical fitness test and had to come back and um, take it over again. And then we had our first scrimmage and they demoted me. And I went and talked to the coach and he said, I, he said, well, I said, well, you feel justified in what you did? He said, yes. So I walked away from it, went to the athletic director, kept my scholarship for a semester. I was classified as a junior, which meant I had two, two more years to, to, for academic work. But I looked at my classes and realized that I only needed 57 hours to graduate. 
So I quit football in August of 1979. I had finished high school in 1977. So in August of 1980, I graduated from mm -hmm. high school, my first, from college, my first college degree, criminal justice. Um, I got those 57 hours in one year. I carried a full load in the fall. I got 27 hours in the spring, tested out of a couple of courses, and I had nine hours to graduate in the summer, and I did. You got it. Got into graduate school and started that immediately, and I actually got my first job at the Memphis and Shelby County Juvenile Court as an intake officer in May of 1980. So, uh, you know, the academic work was good, but, you know, I knew what I had to do. Right. So, so you get this, just getting the timeline right, you, you graduate from college in 80, you get that first job. But you also got married pretty pretty young, right? Right out of high school? Yep. Dumbest thing I ever did. Married <laughs> my high school sweetheart, 18 years old. You still uh, figure really yourself struggle. out, so maybe you didn't know. Yeah, we, was, we didn't really struggle, but but we lived in married student housing. She was a, was, in, was a college student at first, and she got a job at the local hospital, which had benefits. Mm -hmm. And at 20 years old, I was a dad. My, uh, my first son was born in January of 1980. And the second one was born December of 1980. Uh, mm -hmm. So we had two kids within a year. At 21 years old, two months after graduating from college at 21, I bought my first house. $500 yeah. earnest money in the Orange Mountain area of Memphis, Tennessee. Nice. And, uh, you know, we, we had a nice little house and had the kids. And um, I was in grad school and doing well. Uh, became a probation officer at juvenile court, got assigned to the Child Support Bureau. And then in the summer of 1982, I got arrested. You got arrested. Wait, so a lot's going on here. You mm -hmm. have graduated, you're working, you're now in grad school, you have new family members, you know, new children. You get arrested. What happens? I got arrested for asking the cop a question. Hmm. He gave my wife a ticket for speeding, which she was not doing. The guy who was speeding went past us and he just ignored him. And he had a charge on the tick on the arrest on the uh, citation. I, I said, what kind of charge is that? He told me to get out of the car. Hmm. I didn't talk about his mama. I didn't call him names, but I followed his instruction. He, he took me out of the car. He told me to turn around. He handcuffed me. Now I'm six, five, 250 pounds. Mm -hmm. And he's five foot, maybe five or six, maybe 145, maybe 150 at the most. And uh, he's not happy that I challenged his authority. So he um, put me in the, in the van, in the SUV, and started asking questions. When he found out I was a probation officer at juvenile court, he tore up the ticket, the original ticket, and wrote a second lie. And uh, I got arrested. I spent two hours in jail, got out, got the class late, my graduate class late. Professor goes, why are you late? I said, I've been in jail. And he started laughing. They all laughed at me. I said, no, I'm serious. I went to jail. They couldn't, they couldn't believe it. Oh, they were shocked. Me of all people. Now you're uh, in a criminology program at this time, right? So that's very tough. Major in criminal justice, got a master's degree. I'm working on a yeah. master's degree. And, 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 and this happens to me. But I was smart enough to understand you don't resist cops because they're in charge. And the guy was actually trying to antagonize me. I didn't fall for it. We mm. went to court and uh, the judge threw it out. As a matter of fact, once he heard what happened, he called the police officer up to the desk and he pushed the microphone away and he told him, if you ever bring anybody else in my courtroom with these kind of trumped up charges, I'm going to lock you up. Mm. So he, he said, step but, but back this, and he dismissed the case. 
this story gets interesting though, right? Because after you graduate, you you go get a job as a Memphis police officer yep. and you you show up to work and who do you see? I'm at the juvenile court locking up a kid and the guy who arrested me walks in the door and he doesn't know who I am. My, my old supervisor at juvenile court asked me, said, do you know who that guy is standing next to you? And he looks at me, he looks up at me because he, like I said, he's short. He goes, no. Mm -hmm. And my supervisor said, that's Ted Golden. The guy turned purple. He literally turned purple and left mm -hmm. the room. He, he walked out of the room without saying another word because I got wow. a badge and a gun like him and he, he ain't happy. Mm. Now, what was he doing at this point? Was he just another, you know, another officer or? He was a sheriff's deputy and he was arresting someone. He was putting a kid in juvenile court too. I mean, it, it's just a fluke of luck. I mean, to, to be in the same place at the same time with a guy who'd arrested me about 15, 18 months earlier. And it, it you know, it, it was actually one of those, oh, hala, I got you moments. Cause, cause here I am, this guy tried to ruin my life and I'm standing next to him as a law enforcement officer and he just can't deal with it because mm -hmm. you know a lot of people do things because they they're just bad people like that right now we're going through with law enforcement you know people right. make bad decisions and he made a bad decision all he had to do was give her the ticket and and, and go on about his way but he decided to make my life uh difficult because you know hey he can right wow that's that's a fascinating story now while you're in this journey, you start thinking, hey, maybe I want to go explore some new things. You start thinking about maybe law school, maybe the FBI. How, how do you find your way to the DEA? Well, I didn't manage to pass that FBI test. I took it twice and missed, missed it by less than 1%, I think, the last time. They had a, they had a cutoff score. Mm -hmm. So I ran into my, my, my college professor, my college department chair, just out at a function or something. And he's got this guy with him from the government who's with the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration. And we have a conversation. He says, give me the 171 like today. So what's that? Um, that's, that's the application for federal federal employment. So uh, I, I hand wrote the 171 and got it to him within two days. You know, it's an extensive background on who you are, where you've lived, who your folks are. You know, all kind of stuff, including my arrest. I had to put that on there. And uh, I got hired in March of, uh, went to an interview, got hired in March of uh, 2000, I mean, uh, 1985. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. I, I went to DEA training uh, down in Glencoe, Georgia. Uh, last class, last DEA class at Glencoe. And uh, had another very humbling experience. Um, I was one of five male blacks to start the training, but the only one to finish. Hmm. And it was unfortunate because the, uh, the guy who was a black guy in charge of practical exercises, he came to me. He pulled me out of the classroom. He said, is it racism, Ted? I said, it's worse than racism. He says, what do you mean? I said, when white people complain about how you treat black people, that's bad. And two of our classmates were targeted from day one. They were. They were on them when they first showed up and we later found out that they'd actually filed EEO complaints and because they'd been one guy, one girl had been kicked out of a class previously. And the one of the black guys, they actually threw his application twice. Hmm. So they filed wow. EEO complaints and got the job. And uh, both of them were, were ultimately kicked out of the class. And the both the both of them were able to come back. They they got attorneys and were able to get back into training and get hired and 
and enjoyed the extensive careers with DEA. But, you know, that experience was, you know, when you grow up in a housing project, it's one thing. But when you become a government employee and you watch this, this activity that you just don't understand, because even though I had experienced some racism in the past, it was nothing like this, nothing so pervasive, so crafty, just things that, 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 that made, it, made me very disheartened. But it wasn't so bad that I, I couldn't figure out how I needed to do things and I weathered the storm, right. you know. How to navigate it. Now, what do you mm-hmm. think it is? I mean, yeah, I don't want you to overgeneralize, but, mm-hmm. you know, that sounds systemic. And so what do you think it was? Uh, I don't know if it's still like that uh, in some of the departments, but at least in your experience that created, you know, this systemic environment that was, you know, is accommodated. Right. Uh, and it probably yeah, had been going yeah. on for a while. Well, it's, it's just tolerated. It's tolerated mm-hmm. because they feel like that what they're doing is right. And many of them don't see it as racism. They what see do they it see it as? as? Them, they see it as them trying to get rid of bad apples. You know, it's mm-hmm. an honor to be, it, I mean, when you apply for that job, you're one of 5,000 people, 10,000 folks sometimes that are applying for that law enforcement position. Mm-hmm. And people feel like there's a rite of passage. And they feel like that they have the right to decide who gets to stay and who gets to leave. And so it's almost um, like a fraternity or something. Yeah. And they don't, they don't, a lot of times they don't see it as racism. And, and I understand that to a certain extent. But to, for those of us who sit back and look and we're going through this process, and for the people who are sitting there, the white folks who are sitting there watching, there were some guys who made it very clear. If I had known that this was a racist organization, he said, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have left my job. Mm. And, and it's, it's unfortunate because, again, just like every, everywhere else, just like right now, there are some people that just don't get it. They don't mm-hmm. see what happened to George Floyd as racism. And, and they, don't, they don't get it. But that discretionary power that we in law enforcement have, the decision that you can make to take a life based on your training and experience, even when you know that what you're doing is wrong. You know, it's just it's unfortunate because it gives us all of us in law enforcement a bad name. Right. Right. Now, even though I, I enjoyed a great career with DEA, uh, I still experienced some racist issues, uh, but I was able to weather the storm in that situation and, and go on to uh, to do some good things with my agency. So I'm, yeah. I'm blessed. I, I'm really blessed. Yeah, no, I hear that. That now, once you got out of training, you get stationed in California uh, as yep. an undercover agent. Now, I imagine there's some wild stories, maybe oh, some man. you can't tell us. What can you share? <laughs> My first undercover was a it was actually me holding a shotgun while we dumped a million dollars on the floor. What, uh, yes, sir. We had a we had a, a white drug dealer who was suffering from cancer who owed a million dollars to uh, Colombian narcotic cocaine traffickers. And while he was in his in a hospital in uh, Hawaii, he was um, he left the 19 kilos of cocaine with his brother-in-law who got scared. The brother-in-law called DEA and turned it over. And it was my very first case. So he turned it over to us. In the meantime, the Colombian drug kingpins send a guy from Miami to kill him. The guy gets to San Francisco and he decides he doesn't want to kill him. He turns himself in and says, look, I'm not doing this. So now we got the brother turned into 19 kilos, the, the hit man who gets the chickens out and decides not to kill the guy. And we got the bad guy who the guy who's uh, who originally owes it for the cocaine comes back from Hawaii. We convince him that he needs to cooperate. We put the newspaper behind next to him, throw ketchup all over and take a picture of him to, to make him think he's dead. 
the Colombian kingpin comes from Colombia, along with a guy who was a, a pilot for the Colombians who used to fly loads of cocaine in, who actually had shot another DEA agent like 15 years before that and was out, was uh, had a warrant out for his arrest. Well, he, they show up in, in California and they, they, they're there to receive the million dollars. We dump a million dollars on the floor and there are three of us with shotguns in our hands. And I got a, a mask over my face, a, a ski mask. And, and we, we arrest these two guys and they never go to jail. They, they never go to because they are big time drug dealers. They are at the mm. upper echelon of the organization and I never see them again. And, you know, we arrested them and that was the last time I saw them. They never came back into the office. They went to work on big cases in the southeastern United States. And I can talk about because it it's 40 years ago almost. Mm-hmm. But that's how deep it is when, when you get involved. And then, you know, I spent the rest of my the rest of the time in San Francisco buying crack cocaine in Oakland, California, in the avenues, very dangerous place and uh, working uh, heroin, uh, Mexican tar heroin cases. I had one of the best informants uh, you'd ever run across. He, you know, every every couple of three months, I'm doing a big another heroin case. And uh, uh, it was I was very successful at that. You know, I spent about six months. How, how do you find an informant? Like you, you got that you get this person, he becomes a good source for you. How do you find somebody like that? Well, a lot of them work for money. My guy worked okay. for money. Some so of them work because job. they've been some some are work because they've been arrested and they don't they don't want to go to jail. So they'll they'll give up their organization and anybody else they can. They'll get their mama up to keep from going to jail. Mm. Um, but this guy was working for pay, and okay. uh, he made a lot of money with me. <laughs> he, got, he got paid yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. Okay. We had some very successful heroin cases, all Mexican or Hispanic uh, violators. Mm-hmm. Crack cocaine cases were, were all all uh, black violators. And, and believe it or not, one of the, one of the biggest uh, crack cocaine dealers at that point in time was a guy named Daryl. They called him Little D. I forget what his real name is. That leaves me now, but he's, he's out of jail now. He's actually he got 30 years. Uh, hmm. For selling selling crack cocaine, and he was only 21 years old. He rented the dog track in Oakland uh, for his 21st birthday. Wow! Yeah, yeah. He he was a he was big time. Now you're saying big time. For about so six was, months. It was uh, I spent about six months working cases and six months in court. Okay. Um, you know the the biggest case I did was 10 kilos at one time. Hmm. 10 kilos of cocaine. I was a case yeah. agent on that one, but I didn't do the undercover work. And, um, you know, just trying to trying to do my job and, and at the same time raise a family and, you know, move up in the in ranks in the agency. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. I, I want to ask you a question. I mean, so while working in California, your marriage began falling apart and father became ill. How did you balance these? Yeah, initially my marriage was was in, in a big, big mess when I first got there. I actually didn't think we was going to survive. My my now ex-wife actually left me and my sons uh, in San Francisco, I think two or three times. And it was a struggle. Initially, when I arrived there in October of 1985, my grandfather passed away. And then, um, right, it was in Thanksgiving time. And then uh, 30 days to the date, my dad had a heart attack. Oh, he didn't die, I'm sorry. My dad had a heart attack uh, and was in the hospital. And I used my my one check and uh, bought three one way tickets to uh, to Memphis and went to see how my dad was doing. So that was a a big, big struggle. I actually was going to quit 
and what happened was my um, some guys I work with sent me a ticket and said, "Get back to um, get back to uh, San Francisco, man. Don't leave this job." So I okay. left my kids with my, my my parents and her grandparents. My wife was actually in uh, nursing school at the time. She only had the less than six months to finish. So it didn't make sense for her to leave and start over again. She just stuck with the, the, the nursing school. So it was a it was a trying time for me as a young 20, was it 26 years old at the time? But, you know, I, I, I got to give my faith uh, credit. The, the good Lord spared me. He allowed me to live with my aunt and get uh, get uh, get taken care of. And uh, uh, then I was um, the uh, I was able to. Um, uh, persevere and survive the uh, onslaught of all the bad things that can happen in your life. And uh, she got a job finally and decided to stay and we were able to survive. It was, it was a, it was a trying time. Yeah. No, I hear that. Now there are some issues with your supervisor where you yeah, eventually. That, that, that's it. It. There, there was a situation with my supervisor and you know, when you are successful at doing what you do and the stats, you know, again, back in law enforcement, the stats, were just um, were very good. You know, we had maybe had over a hundred arrests that year, and ninety-five percent of them belonged to me. And uh, my supervisor decided to give me an ultimatum. He said, "Hey, you keep buying dope, keep making cases. You can drive any kind of car you want, and come to work when you want." And my argument to him was, "Well, that's not the way you get promoted. You have to have significant cases. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, when it gets uh, when you're." application for a promotion gets examined in headquarters, they look at you and go, you just did Mickey Mouse cases. So he and I had a little falling out. And uh, the funny part was uh, one night we, I went out to meet this guy to buy two kilos of cocaine. And uh, it was a dangerous spot because we had two guys who got three guys who gotten shot, two of them had died in LA. And my group, group thought that that was going to happen to me. So they called out all the all the whistles and stops trying to get me pulled over. If you could imagine a, 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 the two black guys riding a white Barrett's Cadillac with, without tinted windows being passed by the highway patrol who was supposed to stop me to make sure I was okay. That's uh, highly unusual, but we were successful in taking the case down. And my supervisor, he made a comment the next morning, well, I didn't expect you to go out and do, do risk your life like that. I looked at him and laughed. I says, no. That guy lit a marijuana cigarette with my a joint with my uh, my cigarette lighter. After I told him it wasn't working, he was going to jail that night. So <laughs> the uh, the unfortunate part was I had to fight. I actually had resigned, and then I got a call from two guys I didn't know, and they said, "Look, you need to stay on this job. So let's help you." So they helped me to fight, and as a consequence, I filed a, a, a EEO complaint, and I. Um, appealed my bad evaluation and unfortunately the EEO investigator messed up the investigation. They were afraid that uh, things were going to get worse, packed up my stuff and I, I left San Francisco and moved to Atlanta. And then three months later, I got a phone call and said, where do you want to go? And they transferred me to here to Atlanta uh, where I was uh, worked for the, uh, the only black special agent in charge ever worked in Atlanta. His name was Garfield Hammonds Jr. He hired me and uh, gave me a, a spot here in Atlanta and ultimately gave me a big responsibility of being a public information officer uh, for the agency. Now, that's more of a of uh, a public role. Waiting for your next question. 
How's that different from the undercover work? Oh yeah, definitely public role. Initially I started off, I was the marijuana eradication coordinator and the public information officer. And we had not really had a proactive public information officer before. So what happened was, it was funny, we indicted a couple of NFL football players and for, for buying steroids. And mm -hmm. my boss didn't listen to me. I told him that we weren't going to arrest anybody else. These guys had clammed up. One of the guys was an all-pro offensive tackle. And wow. uh, he didn't listen to me. So he decided that he was going to get up and you know, make his statement in front of the media. He told him that he was sure we were going to indict other NFL football players. So as a consequence of that statement, you're talking to the only DEA agent ever to appear on Inside the NFL. Uh, <laughs> I ended up on Inside the NFL, backtracking his statement, explaining about the steroids, uh, uh, you know, situation in this country and how professional athletes were using it to recover from, from injuries. But my boss pulled me to the side. He said, from now on, you make the statements about the facts of the case. And I'll just provide some color commentary because I can't, you can't clean up my mistakes, but I can clean up yours. So at that point, my, my uh, progress into the media organizations here in Atlanta began. And I enjoyed six years uh, at the top, creating an organization called the Law Enforcement Media Association, which allowed law enforcement PIOs to talk directly with, with uh, TV people, newscasters. Rather than wait until something bad happens, we had we had a meeting and we once a month and we would talk about stuff like you know talk about important things. Got involved in a lot of uh, intervention prevention programs here in DeKalb, DeKalb County where I live in Atlanta. I joined the 100 Black Men of Atlanta. I was on advisory boards for the um, with the SCLC Wings of Hope Project advisory committee for the DeKalb County uh, for the the Georgia Department of Children and Youth Services. Got in, involved in the King Center with the National Law Enforcement Involvement Committee and, you know, and, and, and really got to engage in intervention prevention programs with young people at the King Center. We were focused on kids who were part of a, the state uh, juvenile justice system. And we, we uh, had three successful years at the King Center teaching them about nonviolence. I met some great people. I got to spend a lot of time with Mrs. King, you know, back in the 90s. And really uh, learned a lot about nonviolence. As a matter of fact, I'm a certified trainer in nonviolence at the King Center now uh, here in Atlanta. And mm -hmm. I had some great friends. Uh, I've met John Lewis, uh, C.T. Vivian, you know, uh, a lot of folks who were part of the movement. And uh, uh, had a lot of engagement with young people. I started a, a program here in, in DeKalb County at my school system called uh, uh, the Red River Week program, where I actually, we would be in contact with about 5,000 kids every year using high school students to teach them about, uh, you know, saying no to drugs, choosing friends wisely and staying in school and getting educated. So enjoyed a great, great uh, uh, access because of being a public information officer with DEA. Tell me more about that work and uh, how it's changing uh, in light of the pandemic. Well, the good part is I'm retired. So, uh, but I am still engaged in some activities. Uh, I have a 15 year old son who is uh, in high school and it's a struggle. Oh, I forgot to tell you, I have three grown sons. They're all police, they're all in law enforcement. Uh, two of them are DEA agents and one is a, a, a captain on the police department here. Cool. It's a struggle. And I can tell you this, uh, having run two different, two separate high school football booster clubs, this COVID-19 virus is devastating uh, their programs because 
unlike other professional sports, they can't uh, get in a bubble. So they're testing positive. And I personally think that ultimately they're going to have to cancel the seasons or reschedule mm-hmm. it for the spring when things might be better. But right. um, it's not a good a good situation because that disease is really, really getting getting uh, over overwrought. Absolutely. Now, you ended up having a successful career and d- despite all of these challenges. Well, what you know, you my ad- success as a DEA agent came about because of my persistence and my work ethic. I was once put in a hole uh, in a, a technical operations and basically told to do nothing, <laughs> which I, I did for a couple of years. You know, I couldn't hand out a radio or a battery. I was in technical operations, which was a, a blessing in a way because I got divorced in 1996 when all this happened and uh, ended up uh, in technical operations. Uh, and two guys weren't getting along. So they, they moved me into another location where I ultimately became responsible for two closed information systems across 24 states, 24, 24, 21 cities and four states, which was a tremendous responsibility with a lot of interaction with state and locals and, and different programs and activities. And basically, I spent the last 14 years on the technical side of the house, learning the ins and outs of the responsibility of running those information systems and going through, I think, 12 upgrades. And I can't tell you all the things I used to do because they're, they're covered. But mm-hmm. uh, because of 9-11, technology had to be advanced in a way to make us safe in this country. And unfortunately for a lot of folks that, that don't realize this, there's not a war being fought in this world that doesn't have a, a connection to narcotics trafficking. Because uh, unfortunately, uh, drug trafficking is an easy way to get money to get drugs and bombs. I mean, to get uh, bombs and, and uh, uh, guns. And it's, uh, it's pervasive and it's uh, the finances, the money that's behind it is, is unbelievable. It does you know, drug money does is, is in every aspect of the financial system in this country. And a, actually, my success as a parent and, and as a DEA agent, you know, I owe it all to God and my work ethic. I was raised to be to work. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I can tell you some stories about when I'm off on weekends and things happen. Uh, actually, there was a police officer killed one time in uh, in South Fulton County. And the marshal service was had an idea of where the guy was and they needed somebody to help in activating technology to be able to find out where he was, called me on a right. Saturday, a Sunday. And I went down to the office uh, with no access cards and we were successful in uh, activating uh, a search of his, his, his uh, cell phone and they found the guy and they arrested him within, within 48 hours. So, you know, the, the responsibility, the camaraderie with local law enforcement people, uh, sheriff's deputies and police officers and other federal agencies, you know, immigration and FBI and all that. It's all inclusive. We did a, I enjoyed a fantastic career, 28 years, nine months and 16 days. And, you know, I had a few humps in the road, but was able to, to be successful in what I was doing. Uh, that's great to hear. You know, the stress and, and strain that's happening right now between law enforcement and the, the communities, that's not new. It's been going on forever. It's just gotten more enhanced by the death of Breonna Taylor, the death here in Georgia, the young man who was chased down by by uh, renegades. And that thing with George Floyd, I was on uh, court TV just this past uh, Thursday where we reviewed the, uh, the newly released video from George Floyd. 
And it was hard for me to look at it as a law enforcement officer. It was hard mm. for me to hear the foul language they used when they first confronted him. It was even more difficult to watch them hold that man down and watch him die because they were trying to detain him. I mean, you know, in order for us to be able to be successful as a community, we need law enforcement. But law enforcement right. has to be compassionate. Not everybody is like those people. Uh, every once in a while, you run across one or two folks who, who are really hung up on the job and the authority. But I think that we have to begin to work together. Uh, here in Atlanta, we started a program five years ago when we had a similar issue that came up. We started a thing called Conversation with Cops here in DeKalb County. And we work with the South Precinct to uh, bring to, to take police officers, live police officers into five the South DeKalb, uh, South Precinct high schools. We went in classrooms with 25 or 30 students and we had direct conversations with them. And we talked to them about the attitude about law enforcement. And there are three things we learned. Number one, the negative hype about cops is mostly supported by social media. Less than 25 percent of the kids had had negative contact with law enforcement, these are high school kids. Uh, but we did find out that that negative, that, that 83%, I'm sorry, 83% of the kids want to get involved in community activities to improve their community and make it safer. That's the fix. The fix is to become engaged in community, to get young people involved in, in changing how law enforcement is perceived, and to try to recruit them into to becoming law enforcement officers. I was recently asked, why would I allow my sons to become DEA agents if, if I had had such, you know, the, the issues I'd had racially with DEA? I told him, look, we can't change it from the outside. You know, we can make an effort to try to, like what they're doing now with the, the effort to uh, change the way law enforcement is viewed, to defund the police, to find ways of promoting, supporting community-based programs. But let's be honest. It, in order to change, you have to change from the inside. The people who run these organizations, who set up these rules and regulations, who enforce the policies and procedures with law enforcement officers, they have to take the lead and demand that people do their jobs. Yeah, no, that's that's great. And I agree. For everyday people, community involvement, just getting involved in programs and activities that are functioning in your community. Uh, I just got off the phone with a friend of mine who was uh, who's, who's, who's had some problems. It has to do 20 hours of career of uh, community service. I called a friend of mine who's a retired school teacher who works with the South DeKalb Improvement Association, a 50C3 organization that's involved in changing the educational opportunities for young people and young people who are in bad situations. And, and she says, yeah, I can use her. They're going to be handing out flyers in front of uh, uh, Staples on Saturday for three hours. Uh, trying to recruit folks to bring their kids into their, their mentoring program so they can get tutored on how to deal with the, with the technology now, especially with having to get kids online. So, but there are a lot of things that people can do. You can, you can pick up trash and do a whole lot of stuff. So what I want to share with your audience, I think it's important that we recognize the fact that law enforcement is struggling to hire people. Police, people don't want to be cops anymore because of the bad name they've got. Mm. And the competition for the job isn't what it used to be anymore. When I was hired as a Memphis police officer, you had to have two years of college. That's a blessing. Uh, nowadays, I just want a high school diploma. And as a consequence of us lowering our standards, we wind up with situations like George Floyd, where people come in and they're not 
they're not at the level where we need to have them to be. So what we have mm -hmm. to do now is don't talk about us. Don't, don't demean, defile, degrade us, burn up our cars and turn things over and tear up precincts. Come out here and help us. Help us bridge the gap uh, between law enforcement and community. Help us to identify people who want to become law enforcement officers. It's a great opportunity for you to learn, to meet people, to travel, and at the same time, do a job that is worthwhile. I retired at 54 years old, and I get a check now until the day I die. And I had a great experience, despite the negative things that happened in my job. Federal law enforcement is a fantastic way for you to see the world and to get exposed to the different avenues of what you can do in law enforcement. I think it's a blessing to be able to sit here and tell you this because, you know, like I told you, I have three sons who tow badges and guns. And people ask me all the time, did you, did you force them to go? I said, no. They watched me as a father. They watched me do my job, not just as a law enforcement officer, but as a, as a parent and as right. someone who's actively involved in my community. Even now, with, with me being retired, I'm still engaged in community. I've, I just did my third unsuccessful effort to become the sheriff of DeKalb County. But that's not <laughs> going to stop me from doing the things I need to do. You know, right. we're going to pick up our, our boots, bootstraps, and we're going to go on to the next phase. You know, I got to continue to work in my community. I got a 15-year-old I got to raise. My wife's a school teacher. I believe that education is the key to success, having been raised in the housing projects myself and to, to uh, become who I am. You know, blessed to have raised three adult sons who all played college football on scholarship like their dad, who wow. all graduated in three and four years, and who all have master's degrees. And I now have four grandsons, so they're all dads. Uh, and my 15-year-old is an honor roll student. So, you know, I know how important academics are. And I know that uh, in order for us to be successful, we got to, it's going to take everybody working together. Unfortunately, some bad people out there, some bad folks in law enforcement side and some bad people who commit crimes. But I really want to share this with you guys before we cut off. We're talking about reforming law enforcement and we're talking about taking away money and putting it in intervention prevention programs. But we still have an issue with young African-American males and females, females are getting even worse than males now, that are invading the criminal justice system. You know, we can, we can stop the George Floyd incidents from occurring. We got to find ways of impacting our, our blacks and browns from becoming engaged in the criminal justice system because the money that's spent uh, housing an inmate, $50,000 a year for people who are arrested in our, in our sheriff's office here, $50,000 a year, $83 a day to lock somebody up, $93,000 a year to house juveniles in the juvenile justice system. That's money we can use to engage community to enhance education and, and to give these kids an opportunity to be kids. You know, where I come from, we'd have to pay to play basketball, football, or baseball. It was all free. It cost me $500 for my kids to play sports. Uh, hmm. What about the parents who don't have the money? You know, so we got to find ways of engaging them. The arts is a great way to keep them out of trouble. Sports is a great way. And exposure to positive role models is even a better way. So we got to put together financial resources and people resources to change their mindset so they can become positive, positive parts of society. Ted, thank you for joining us. That was really great. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Hopefully uh, folks will listen to my story and, and get some benefit from it. And maybe we can recruit some folks to become law enforcement officers because the biggest thing I talk about, and I'm going to close with this, discretionary decisions. 
police officers have discretion in how they do their jobs. And I know this is late to say this, but there are many times that I could have could have shot and killed people, but I didn't because I used my discretion to make what I thought was the best decision for the situation. This is True Voice.